of Egypt out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let us pray. Dear Lord, as we come here today to the reasons behind your insistence upon the second commandment, we ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment to see how these reasons affect our lives and touch our lives. We pray that you would accomplish a work of transformation in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Because we realize that as we look at your word together, Lord, then unless your Holy Spirit will act and will apply these things to our hearts and cause us to see them with eyes that have been uh, opened by the Holy Spirit, that we will not be able to see, we will not be able to understand, we will not be able to turn, we will not be able to repent. We ask that you would accomplish all of these things in our hearts, that we might become true, gracious, blessed children of God. I pray, Lord, that my words might be in keeping with your word, because your word is holy, and it is your word that has the power through the Holy Spirit to change lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Competition certainly has its place. In our day and age, there is a war, sort of a tug of war that is going back and forth as to whether or not children in schools, for instance, should be involved in competition. The competition has its place. But there are places, or there is a place, where it doesn't belong. It does not belong in committed, unique relationships. What's the value of commitment? The value of commitment is that you don't need to worry when you're at work, home, or school whether or not the other person is going to be there when you return to him or to her. The value of commitment is that you can plan on a future that includes the other individual, without having to go through all the possible equations in your mind and in your planning that would involve a life without that person, although the person would still be alive. The value of commitment is that you are always there for that person, as well as that person always being there for you. There's a give and take in commitment that is mutual. Yet if there's a time when the commitment is one-sided, you have faith that your relationship will continue through to the other side because of commitment. This is God's desire from us. Commitment. We've seen this in the first two commandments. He's made it very clear and very plain. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall make no graven images. Here we see the reasons for God's insistence that we be devoted single-heartedly to Him and to worshiping Him. He does not want competition in our relationship with Him. He does not want competition in our relationship with Him. He wants commitment, wholehearted commitment, complete commitment. Why should we refuse to let anything get between Him and us? Because put... Quite bluntly, the reason we should refuse to let anything get between in our relationship with him is because he won't like it. He tells us this in our passage. I am a jealous God. I am jealous. 
There is not room for more than one God. Consider with me the biblical examples of polygamy, in which husbands had more than one wife. There are Abraham, who had Sarah, and because God had promised them a child, she gave Sarah as a wife her handmaiden, Hagar. This is in Genesis chapter 16. There is Jacob, who married both Rachel and Leah and their handmaidens because between the two of them they were not pleased in the competitive atmosphere that had grown up between them with the number of children that they had at different times during their marriage to their one husband. A complicated sort of web going on there. Genesis chapter 29 for that. There is Elkanah in 1 Samuel 1.1 who was married to both Hannah and Penina. The results of these examples are evident in each one. Competition led to rivalry. Rivalry led to much weeping. There was hurt and bitterness, which led to anger. And as we see in the example of Joseph being sold into slavery, there is in the offspring the intent to commit murder because that's what his brothers had planned for him when one of them decided it would be just as easy to get him out of the way by selling him into slavery in Egypt. All of these emotions... All of these actions are the result of one thing. That one thing is jealousy. And so you may be very easily led to the point where you say, well, jealousy is wrong. If this is the sort of thing that arises out of it, it has to be wrong. We have in our culture the situation, an attitude which treats jealousy as though it were wrong as though it were lamentable. We should be sorry when we are jealous. We should be upset when we see jealousy. And we have two responses in our culture to jealousy. There is either the the, you get even response or there is you make nothing of it. You treat the cause of your jealousy as though it had no significance whatsoever. As a result... Commitment is broken down and relationships are broken down. But we see in our passage that God describes himself as a what kind of God? Jealous. He's a jealous God. If God is jealous, then that means that in certain situations demonstrated in certain ways, it's right. It's appropriate. In the cases of Sarah and Hagar, Leah and Rachel, Penina and Hannah, who was the mother of Samuel, jealousy was present. In each one of those situations, it was present. It exhibited itself on a day-by-day basis. You can see this perhaps most graphically in the relationship between Leah and Rachel. Rachel was the favorite wife, and she was the one whom Jacob had worked for for seven years. And then in the midst of a dark night, her father, Laban, snuck Leah in to marry Jacob. Jacob woke up in the morning, saw who he was married to, and was furious. And Laban said, we can straighten that out. You marry Rachel also. Well, so you can imagine that that set the seeds for a great deal of jealousy between the two sisters, the older being Leah, the younger being Rachel. And as Leah started to have children and Rachel didn't, 
Rachel said, well, in our culture, it's appropriate for my handmaiden to also be my husband's wife. If I can't have any children, I'll have them through her. So she gave her handmaiden as, in essence, a wife, although it wasn't in technical terms a wife, to her husband. And, and uh, that handmaiden, they somehow started to get ahead in the numbers. So Leah said, well, I can do the same thing too. And so she did the same thing too. And it was back and forth, back and forth. <clears throat> it was very appropriate for these women to be jealous in this situation. As God demonstrated in the Garden of Eden, man and woman were created for a unique relationship based upon one man and one woman. These biblical examples show us that when a man has more than wife, he prefers one over the other. People expect single-hearted devotion out of their spouse. So when they see or know of something going on that proves that it ain't so, they react very strongly. And it's appropriate. It's appropriate. Those who argue against jealousy either have never been in an experience where they were close enough to expect and deserve single-minded commitment or they have been in such relations, such as the relationship of marriage, and have been the partner in a relationship who has been constantly breaking the commitment to the other partner so that their disregard for and complaints against jealousy are simply selfish demands for a relationship in which they can break all the rules without consequences, a relationship where they can enjoy the privileges of commitment without accepting the accompanying responsibilities. God will not treat it lightly if we are not completely and totally committed to Him. That is where this whole thing is going. As I have mentioned through this series and many other times, the example is given in Scripture and reinforced again and again and again that the relationship between a husband and a wife, spouses, is akin to the relationship between an individual and God. And so that's why I'm bringing in the marriage relationship because it teaches us a great deal because we have a lot of personal experience in that, a lot of us. And so it teaches us about this relationship with God and the relationship with God teaches us what ought to be in our marriage relationships as well. God will not tolerate it if we give our attention to another. He is jealous of first his honor. He has no intention of seeing other false gods receive our homage, our worship, or our praise. Because the facts are that he has made us in all things. How do we think he would feel if he saw us worshiping the sun or the moon or the stars? How do you think he would feel if he saw us worshiping other people? Or if he saw us making things secondhand, we're not even now worshiping things that he has created, but if we started making things out of wood or stone or clay and said, oh my God, I bow to you, I worship you. Well, you can imagine that he would boil and seethe. <laughs> he would boil and seethe. <clears throat> Several years ago, I gave a presentation to a, uh, to a Sunday school class de- detailing how to pick the best Sunday school curriculum for a Sunday school program. I had worked on this presentation for some time, and I had presented it before. And so I was quite flattered when the professor, I noticed the professor was taking notes. That's the kind of thing that makes you feel good. Um, Several months later, I got my copy of the New England Christian Quarterly, which is a newspaper devoted to general topics of interest to pastors and 
church leaders. <clears throat> On the back page, there was an article written by the prof in whose class I had made my presentation on the subject of how to pick the right Sunday school curriculum. Now, I read it. I was flattered to see that my lecture was there in complete form. But then I wasn't so flattered either because whose name was on the article? It wasn't mine. I went back. I looked at my notes. I looked at the article. This was within a three-month period. It's not the time, time period of time when you're likely to forget where you learn something. <clears throat> I went back, I compared it with my notes, and sure enough, it was identical even to the wording in many of the subpoints. There it was, my work, published in a paper. Kind of thing that's supposed to make you feel good, right? But it didn't have my name on it. And if I were ever to publish my work in another paper, then I would be accused of plagiarism. God is jealous of his honor. He does not intend and will not share it with anyone else. He does not want others taking credit for what he has done. He does not want others giving credit for what he has done to things or people. He deserves and he gets credit for all things, and he refuses to let others in on his honor. He is also jealous of his people. He is not willing for them to let others replace him in their affections. Again, in our day and age, we see so many forms of uh, failing to keep commitments, infidelity, treated as though they were commonplace and unmeaning. The new movie, Covered Bridges, which I haven't seen but have heard various people describe, some of you may have seen it, (coughs) deals with this issue in detailing the experience of a woman whose husband and children went away for several days, during which time she has a wonderful romance with a stranger who is a photographer. In the end, her choice to remain with her husband and children is another witness to the insignificance of commitment, the way in which commitment and fidelity are treated shabbily in our day and age. Because even though she had broken her marriage vows, she felt no qualms in relating with her husband and children, allowing her liaison, her lover, whatever, to go on his way. As though she had done no permanent, no significant damage to her relationship with her husband, not injured or harmed or wronged him in any way, shape, or form. God won't tolerate this in our relationship with him. That is the message that comes as the reason why he does not want us to make graven images or bow down to them or worship them. I've used the expression God will not tolerate several times, expressed it in different ways leading up to this point, in expressing his reaction to people who are involved in idolatry or worshiping other gods. Parents sometimes use that expression to their children, as do others in authority. This will not be tolerated. And so you naturally ask yourself, so what? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? If you go out to a restaurant and you see parents dealing with a child, and, and they say, I will not let you do that. I will not tolerate that. You as a bystander are sitting by waiting to see. What's going to (laughs) happen? When the child does it, you say, okay, now what does that mean? We find out what that means in our passage with regard to God. 
God punishes. God punishes. Exodus 20, verse 5, in the latter part, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In Exodus 34, verse 7, this is a, this is a phrase that continues throughout the Old Testament. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Punishing the sin of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In Exodus 34, 7, it says, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. It just goes on repetitively again and again and again. (coughs) So, lest we think that we can do it without anything happening, God says... I will not tolerate this. This is what will happen. I will punish it through you, to your children, to your grandchildren, to your great-grandchildren. Lest that we think that we can ignore with no risk, the threat is there and the threat is real. He not only promises to punish those who sin, he promises to carry that punishment out several generations. In other words, lest those who regard him think they can get away with spiritual adultery, they will not only suffer his punishment, it will carry on down through the generations after him. Now, many people are quite simply so selfish that they don't really care the prospect of their children or the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren being punished as a result of their own sin. You can think of examples of that in Scripture. Hezekiah is an example where God came to him and said, Because of what you have done, and it was not specifically uh, idolatry, because of what you have done, I am going to bring trouble upon your kingdom. And it will not start in your own lifetime, but it will start in the lifetime of your son. And Hezekiah said to himself and reacted and said, Well, that's okay. (laughs) That's okay? Unfortunately, at the same time, there are those who do not care what happened to their children, For others, the thought of bearing their own punishment doesn't hit home, but the thought of their children bearing the punishment for their sin will. There's great evidence of this in our culture today. We have statistics that indicate heredity is a word that comes up again and again and again with regard to addiction to alcohol and so many other sins, vices, and wickedness of our day and age. Not only were those who were involved in these sins suffer from them, but also their children are at great risk and likelihood of suffering from them and being involved in them as well. And so when you hear heredity being used as a statistical uh, word, a word in statistics, there is a great likelihood in heredity for this to happen, and it's involving sinful actions. You can think about this passage And you can realize that this in part is what God is speaking about, the punishment for those who hate him being carried down through the generations. Whether we call it heredity or what, whatever we want to call it, it's God's way of seeing that this happens. This is a sobering issue in our day because of the increase of wickedness, the lack of faithfulness in so many relationships, rampant cheating, stealing, whether from stores or from the IRS, sexual promiscuity, adultery, homosexuality, premarital sex, so many other sinful practices. I thought it was fascinating to learn what uh, the convicted multiple killer Charles Manson is said to have recounted following 
<clears throat> of an event uh, in his childhood. He spent a good deal of his time in bars with his mother, who was an alcoholic. In one bar, the waitress commented that he was a cute child and jokingly asked how much his mother would take for her son. His mother said, a pitcher of beer. The waitress brought his mother a pitcher of beer. She drank the pitcher of beer and left without him. It was a week before an uncle tracked down the waitress and found him and brought him back. <clears throat> we can be sure that not only did she suffer the punishment of her sin, evidence of hatred for God the Creator, we see great evidence of the fact that her son Charles also did, and we as a culture did as well because of the atrocities that he committed in our world. An example of this fact that the, the, the sins of the fathers are carried on through the children, through the generations, is given to us in Numbers chapter 14, 33. When this promise is given to the Israelite people, the adults, those over 20 years old who had rebelled against the Lord when the Lord had had Joshua send 12 spies, Moses send 12 spies into the land. And 12 of them came back and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, the land is great, the people are big, but with God's power we can take it. And the other 10 said, no chance. Those people, to those people, we are like grasshoppers or grains of sand. We cannot take it. I don't know what we're doing here. We should never have left Egypt. And so the people rebelled against God and they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And the result of that is told to us in Numbers 14.33. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness <clears throat> until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. Why did they spend those years wandering in the wilderness? Why did the children spend those years wandering in the wilderness? Because of the sin of their parents. Now, we, we may think this is unfair, but it's because of a principle of Scripture that is carried out from the beginning of mankind through to the present, and it will be carried out until heaven intervenes. And that principle is the principle that we represent our offspring. Adam represented us. Why is there sin and death in the world today? Because... Adam sinned. And because Adam sinned, as we are told in Romans, sin and death entered into the world. And we can't get away from that. So this is a fact of life and a principle of spiritual reality. The reality of this, that children suffer for the sins of their parents, is something that we have been contending with in our home. This is where, and, and this whole thing has been harsh up to this point, right? It's been, I am a jealous God. I won't tolerate it. Now, why is God jealous? Why is God jealous of us? Why is He jealous of His honor? He's jealous because He loves us. He's jealous because He created us to bring glory to Him, to praise Him, to be in a relationship with Him that was as wonderful as it began in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> and so this is where we come to the wonderful news, <clears throat> the positive side of the jealousy of the Lord. God loves people, and he shows mercy. Later in Exodus 20, verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers <clears throat> to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And then in verse 6, But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. <clears throat> Fear of punishment to the third and fourth generation is a big stick. But that fear 
That stick is not capable of keeping people in line by itself. The carrot is the irrepressible love of God. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. He will demonstrate it. He will practice his love and his mercy upon people, though it's not deserved at any way or at any time by sinful humans. And the beauty, of, and the beauty of God's love and mercy is that unlike His punishment, it goes way beyond the third and fourth generations. How many generations does His love and His mercy go? <laughs> I'm going to punish you to the third and fourth generation, but I will show you love and mercy to those who love me to thousands of generations. <clears throat> there is therefore hope for those who would expect only to suffer His punishment due to the sin of their forefathers. Leviticus 26.40 says this, But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me, their hostility towards me, which made me hostile towards them, so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. That hope for us is based upon repentance, demonstrated through confession. Without true repentance, the never-ending cycle continues, in which people sin, and they and their ancestors continue to suffer for that sin. People continue in that pattern of sin until one of them turns with desperation to the Lord and says, Oh Lord, help me. We have not done right. We need this thing to change. This is a hopeless situation. What my parents do, I do. What I do, I'm doing to my kids. What my kids learn from me, they're carrying on to their children. This has got to stop. And so when people, as we are told in Scripture, confess their sins, and as we are told in Leviticus 26.40, as well as the sins of their fathers, when they confess their sinfulness before God, God will forgive them, and He will turn the other cycle on. One part goes off, the other part goes on. Off goes the punishment to the third and fourth generation. On goes the love down through thousands of generations. How do we get the mercy of the Lord? We cannot demand it. Since we are sinners, there's no way in which we can deserve it. It's impossible, therefore, for us to demand it. But that flies in the face of our culture and our nation because we are used to being people who demand our rights. Why are there so many attorneys in our world, in our country today? The other day I chanced to open up the yellow pages and and look through the attorney section. All these huge ads jumping out at you. Have you been injured? On the job, in the car, any place. Well, call us and we'll see that you get justice and in the... Yellow print, since the yellow page ads, you can't read it. It's, and money too. <clears throat> we all know that. So we're a culture that's used to demanding our rights. We cannot demand mercy. This maneuvering that goes on in our culture, <clears throat> manipulating, it works in our culture, it works in our legal climate, but it does not work with the one just judge of the universe because he knows exactly what we deserve. We deserve condemnation, not mercy, death, not life, judgment, harsh and swift, never forgiveness, war, not peace with him. Then how do we find it? 
We must plead for it. We must cry for it. We must beseech God in His goodness. Please, to give us mercy. To give us what we don't deserve. To give us what will bless us rather than curse us and condemn us and judge us. And how do we get it? The passage that I read from Leviticus 26 says, and I will remember my covenant. Um, Let's see. It says, when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin. And what we realize as believers who have the New Testament, the example of Jesus Christ, is that there is no possible way In the same way, there's no way for us to demand uh, mercy. There's no possible way for us to pay for our sin. There is only one payment for sins, and that is Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And that is again an example of the fact that we cannot demand it. It's God's free gift. We must plead for it. We must beseech Him for it with everything of our hearts. What does His mercy do for us? It changes our lives permanently, and it changes them dramatically. There's an example of the blind beggar on the road to Jericho in Luke chapter 18. He heard that Jesus was coming. He proceeded to holler, uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people tried to say to him, be quiet. But he shouted all the louder. That's what you and I must be doing in order to seek this mercy from God. Not only for salvation, but also for continuing forgiveness from the sins that we commit. And the ways in which we allow other things to get between us and our relationship with Him. And when the beggar got Jesus' attention, Jesus transformed his life. He made him able to see... The blind beggar no longer was blind. He was no longer confined to depending upon other people. He was no longer confined to begging on the roadside. He could get up. He could do work. He could earn a living. He could talk to people. He could go see them. He could do all of these things that never were a possibility before. That is the same way in which God's mercy changes our lives. Permanently and completely and totally. And further, it brings blessing to our families. We don't have to worry anymore about suffering the consequences to the third and fourth generation. We look for blessings instead. What then is the best gift that those who have children could give to their children? A good education, a good home, a good start in life? These are great things. An understanding of the world, moral values? None of these, although they are valuable. The best possible gift, if you have children that you can give them, is a parent who is devoted to the Lord. Loving the Lord with single-minded devotion. Letting nothing take His place in your affections. In conclusion, as I look at my family, I witness considerable evidence of the faithfulness of the Lord with regard to this command. Why are all my siblings believers? Involved in Christian work. Three of us pastors, our sister, the director of a Christian school. Because we were good kids? Because we were raised in a Christian culture? No, (laughs) because of our parents' commitment to the Lord through single-hearted devotion. Now, in saying this, I'm not saying God promises every child of a devoted parent will be completely and totally saved, as I do not believe Scripture teaches that. But in my family, I have witnessed evidence of this fact, that God will bless those who are single-heartedly devoted to Him, by bringing blessing into the lives of those who are dear to them and by working in the hearts of those who are their children to bring them to Him. Let us pray. 
Dear Lord, we ask that you would cause us to consider the legacy that we have in our hearts and our lives at this point. <clears throat> we would consider whether or not there is single-hearted devotion in our hearts with regard to our relationship with you, and where there isn't, give us repentance, that we may receive your great blessing, the love that you demonstrate through mercy to those who seek you in confession and repentance. Give us confession and repentance that we might experience your love and your mercy, that you might not only bless us, but bless our children, our wives, our husbands, our parents, all of our family members and friends. Because indeed, those who are committed to you bring blessing to everyone who comes into contact with them. In Jesus' name, amen.